into Jordan. Here's Michael at the foul line. A shot on Elo. Good! The Bulls win! Playoffs? We'll talk about playoffs? You kidding me? I'm supposed to be the franchise player, and we're in here talking about practice. Hello? You play to win the game. They're down to the 20. All the band is out on the field. He's going to go into the end zone. I don't believe what I just saw. One of the all-time shockers. Hi, everybody. I'm Mitch Goldich, and welcome to episode 8 of my very creatively named Mitch Goldich podcast. My guest today is a broadcaster for NBC Sports. He's the play-by-play man for Notre Dame football, does golf for NBC and the Golf Channel, and this summer he'll be calling the swimming during the Olympics from Rio. He is Dan Hicks. Hi, Dan. How you doing? I'm doing well, Mitch. How are you? I'm good. Thanks for making some time to do this. My pleasure. Great. Well, I figure uh, you are another guy who, when I started this podcast, I made a list of people who I knew I'd want to reach out to. And I saved you for now because I figured it was an exciting time with uh, the U.S. Open just finished last week and the Olympics coming up. But I think in an Olympic year, we have to start there with uh, talking some Rio. Absolutely. That would be uh, a, a little sporting event on the calendar this summer that, uh, <laughs> that I'm looking forward to doing. Absolutely. Yeah. So obviously you're headed to Rio. Um, how long are you going to be there? And then how else, uh, besides going to the actual Olympics, how else is your schedule different this summer from a typical summer? Well, you know, anytime you throw an Olympics into the into the equation, it uh, elongates the assignment because there's always things that are attached to the Olympics as well that uh, that make the schedule even more intense. Like, for instance, um, just in a few days, I'll be heading to the U.S. Olympic Swimming Trials, which is going to be in prime time every night, um, seven of the eight nights of the trials from Omaha. So that is a uh, you know an intense but exciting competition that'll be in prime time on NBC every night. So that'll kind of kick things off here. Uh, I basically have three big events this summer that kind of take me into mid-August. We have the swim trials um, at the end of June and end of July, and then we come back and we get ready for the Open Championship, which will be our first at NBC at Royal Troon in Scotland. So I get back from there, and then the Olympics happen. And I will head to the Olympics. We always go to the U.S. Olympic swim team's pre-games training camp to get the last uh, up-to-date uh, information on the swimmers and we're actually in, kind of embedded with them there. That we're the only uh, media that are allowed at their pre-Olympic camp, so we really get the inside information and last-second tidbits that we'll use on the telecast uh, on NBC from Rio. So I'll leave on July 29th for that, get to Rio on August 1st, and then uh, get geared up for the first day of competition, which is August 6th, for swimming, and from there it's eight, eight days, eight nights of intense stuff, and uh, we'll be live in Rio, and so I will actually come back from the Olympics on August 14th, uh, which is kind of in the middle of the Olympics, but um, I'll get back and kind of get ready for the FedEx Cup golf playoffs, which will uh, it won't be for a couple weeks from there, but that'll give me a breather to kind of rest up from uh, what promises to be uh, a busy summer, but really, really exciting summer with those three big events. Yeah, so uh, so that's good. You could still squeeze in the FedEx. Is there anything that you're missing, either normal golf tournaments you would do or football prep uh, late in the summer, anything else that you miss out on uh, or just have to push the back burner to get ready for the Olympics? Not really. Um, you know, we used to do um, the USGA golf events, which would encompass uh, four total events because when you do the U.S. Open, you also do the U.S. Women's Open, the Senior Open, and the U.S. Amateur Championship. But uh since we no longer do those events, that has freed up a little bit of time on my summer calendar. So 
Um, actually, I will not be missing any events. I don't think um, this summer because of because of the uh, because of the schedule. No, we're good. Mm-hmm. So, how much prep work do you have to do? I guess how much of it uh, to get ready for the Olympics is like cramming and studying and getting ready versus how much are you following year round all four years to be ready to call the Olympic swimming? You know, it, it's really like any other sport that we do. You never really stop preparing. You're always reading tidbits and trying to keep up on your particular sport. And in my case, it's the golf, Olympics, and, and the Notre Dame football package that I pay particular attention to. Um, so for the Olympics, it never really stops. But I would say a good year or so out of the actual Olympics, we receive start receiving like frequent uh, research stuff, either through email or through the mail or whatever, that we read and, and kind of digest. I take notes on. I actually have a file on, on all the swimmers that I start uh, kind of fine-tuning um, as far out as a year, year and a half. I did the World Swimming Championships in Russia last year, uh, which was a great kind of prep, which, which was a year out of the actual Olympics in Rio. So that's when the, the real intense uh, preparation kind of started happening. And as we get closer to the Olympics, um, it does build up. And as we get ready for the trials coming up here, we'll have pretty much um, uh, pretty much done uh, the, the American swimming contingent. But as you know, it's the Olympics are all about the world. So now I am concentrating in addition to the U.S. swimmers on the international swimmers that I've known through the years that I have a, a good background on, but there's always new swimmers that we get through our researchers that say, oh, well, have you seen this uh, swimmer from, you know, Australia who's coming up through the ranks? So it's always a constant preparation. But I would say a good year to year and a half out, it's pretty intense uh, research. And then when you finally get to the Olympics, and I know this from this will be my sixth Olympics just doing the swimming play-by-play, my 11th Olympics overall, I got a pretty good handle on what, what's in store because every night is literally a soap opera. And what I mean by that is that every night is its own story that unfolds that has an effect on the next night. So-and-so wins a gold medal, so now you know a little bit more about it. Now they're going to swim two nights later. So you start kind of unfolding all of this information to the, um, to the American uh, television uh, consumers out there and it kind of becomes one of those things where the preparation, you know, during the Olympics is really intense because we're constantly trying to update uh, new information on the fly. And there'll be swimmers that we never, that we know very, very little about that emerge at the Olympics that we've got to introduce not only to ourselves in some cases, but to but to the uh, to the viewers out there. So it it never stops, but it really gets intense uh, starting at the trials and then through the Olympics and then every single day and night we do prelims and finals at night. So it never really stops at the Olympics. It's probably the most physically, it's not probably, it is it's the most physically, uh, biggest physical endurance test that I do and that all of our crew does are those eight days and eight nights of swimming because you don't get much sleep. But at the same time, you have to be on top of your game because a live Olympics is no more important uh programming that we do at NBC. Mm-hmm. So that uh, research and prep work, how much of that is 
studying the actual swimming and like times and races won or competed in and how much of it is because everybody loves about the Olympics, the stories and the, the backgrounds of where this person grew up and where they trained and who their coach is and knowing their personality. So when you're, when you talk about researching these swimmers, how much of your responsibility is just being ready to call a good race and do the play by play and know the swimming and how much is part of your job to know sort of everything that goes behind it and, and the stories that make up these, uh, these great Olympic runs. Yeah, I would say most of my responsibility, the, the vast majority of my responsibility is to know the stories and the background on these swimmers. Um, you know, I've been lucky that we have a lot of people, we have a lot of swimmers that are, that are going to be familiar to people. But again, uh, every four years is is really the time when people really kind of get into swimming. They don't necessarily make a habit of watching all the, you know, Grand Prix meets and the national meets that take place on a yearly basis. So we're not only reintroducing those those swimmers that people are familiar with from either the previous one or two Olympics in some cases, and sometimes even as far back as three Olympics with Michael Phelps, but we are introducing a ton of new personalities from around the world, not just the U.S. So my job is to make people care about who they're watching. That's the, that's the most simplistic way I can put it, is that if you don't care about somebody that you're watching, you're probably not going to want to watch. So my chief responsibility is to make people care about that swimmer in lane two who may be surprised the field and has now has a chance to win an Olympic medal, which is the biggest moment of their life. And I have to... I have to get some background on that person. I got to kind of know a little bit of the the backstory on all of these people. So when they touch the wall and they either get a gold or a silver or a bronze, I can instantly kind of put it in perspective, or I can kind of uh, give people a preview of what to expect in the race. So personality driven, story driven is my responsibility. More with the intricacies of the time and what it's going to take to touch first and what's the tech what's the technical aspect of their stroke and that and that those kinds of things are cheaply done by my analyst uh, Rowdy Gaines who's the best in the business so but we're a team I mean I have to know how to set him up so I will have talked with Rowdy um, about times about what makes this particular person a good breaststroker or a butterfly or whatever and I have to make sure that if Rowdy is caught up in you know, turn number two of the men's 400-meter freestyle, I have to kind of maybe remind him of, well, why is this guy such a good uh, backstroker? What is it about his technique? So I do have to be schooled and caught up on, on those aspects of it, but mainly I'm there to, you know, make people care about what they're watching. All right, so the the whole idea of uh, of being a swimming broadcaster, it's interesting to me, and, and like you said, people don't follow it for – uh, year-round, a lot of times they just come to it for the Olympics, and I don't think it's even on TV that much, so you figure there aren't a ton of other swimming broadcasters. You can't really, like, get your reps in or climb through the ranks uh, as much as you could in, in a sport like baseball or football. So how did you break into it, and how did you get to the point where you started calling swimming, and now you're the guy who for years and years is the one calling Michael Phelps's gold medal races uh, in, in prime time? Yeah, it's interesting how you, you fall into particular niches Back in 1996, Atlanta, I'd been at NBC for four years, and I'd done the studio portion of the Barcelona Olympics in 92. I'd done some studio work then, and then I think as as time went on, I, I obviously wanted to be a play-by-play guy, and so NBC was thinking, well, what, you know, 
what what sport do we think might be good for Dan to, to get involved with? And, and Dick Ebersall, who was our chairman of the Olympics in NBC at the time, um, just thought that swimming would be a good fit. We had a couple of other longtime announcers, uh, John Crickey for one, and Charlie Jones did the Barcelona Olympic swimming call. Um, they had been there for a, many, many years and were kind of uh, easing out into retirement, so to speak. And they thought, well, what you know, what kind of younger guy here can we get in there to kind of make maybe make his mark at swimming? So I did it in '96 live, my first Olympics, uh, and, and a great time doing it. Learned a lot, and uh, it, it kind of became a natural fit. Um, I, I have always liked to call something that's pretty definitive. I'm not a huge fan, or at least a huge fan, of being involved in a sport calling a sport that's judged. You know, all off figure skating and gymnastics. I mean, those are great sports, very highly rated in the Olympics, respectively. But my thing is more race calling. I like that. I like the element of the play-by-play of that. Um, it's exciting. There's a definite ending that every night you're going to give out five, six, you know, gold medals. I mean, it, there's, there's definitely that end result that I like to be involved with every night. So I loved it. Um, you know, did a good enough job to get the assignment again in 2000 in Sydney where the national pastime is swimming in that country. And so that kind of took off. And so that's kind of how I found my niche in it. And I love the personalities in swimming. I think uh, I've done a lot of sports through the years, but I think swimming stacks up with any of them as being a great uh, natural ground of personalities. It's just like it takes a certain individual to stare at a black line and go through the training that it takes to be an Olympic swimmer of that of that elite level. And they're in turn they're great personalities and a variety of personalities, variety of backgrounds. And so I just fell in love with the whole sport and learned more about it. It's like anything. The more you learn about a sport, the more you become a fan of it and the more you appreciate what these swimmers do. And in the case of the Olympics, every four years getting on the blocks and just getting on the team every four years is a pretty stressful thing. So I just like the whole element of it. And uh, it'll be the sixth Olympics, like I said, for me and Roddy Gaines to call. And we're kind of identified with that. People know when they turn on the Olympics and they go to swimming, they're going to hear Dan and Roddy do it. They're kind of familiar with it. And, and, and to a large degree, I think people have liked what we've done through the years. So it's, uh, it's just been a, a fantastic run. Yeah, so you mentioned that you've done a bunch of different sports. I think the last time you and I talked was actually before you went to Sochi and you were preparing to do the uh, alpine skiing for the first time. So, uh, and and you've done a bunch of others. Uh, I think speed skating and diving, right? So how uh, how does swimming compare? Just like the difficulty of calling it, because to me it's one of those sports where. It's a lot easier on TV because the guy, they do the flip turns, and then they show the name and the country in the lane, and you can watch it. But when you're in the uh, in the arena and watching, I mean, how hard is it even to tell who's ahead and who's gaining on them and, and keeping track of who's in what lane? Like, what are you looking at, and, and how tough is it to call a race? Yeah, that's a good point, Mitch. It's, it's one of those sports that if you're not, you know, if it's not enhanced by broadcasters, then you're like, you know, the water's just kind of boiling out there, and you've got people in caps and goggles, and they all kind of look the same, and it's tough enough just to see who's in the lead or how many lengths of the pool are doing. So I think from an aspect of, of calling swimming, it is really important, and that's why we do do a lot of talking. Like, for instance, if, you're, if, you're, if you've got a guy over a putt to win the U.S. Open or if you've got a golfer over any kind of putt to win a tournament, you, you you lay out, you set it up, people know what it means, and you let the pictures and the crowd and the ambience kind of 
tell the story, where in swimming, you know, Rowdy's constantly using the telestrator. And that's what we that's what we emphasize every time we do an Olympics or a trials or whatever. We have to identify who is in what lane. Because if you, if the audience doesn't know who's leading or what to look at, then they're basically, you know, could be in the stands when they're kind of guessing. So I think it is a, a great sport to benefit, that, is, that is benefited by watching it on TV for all those reasons. And you mentioned the graphics that have come a long way. Um, where we've got the flags that are, you know, superimposed over the water with the name. That also helps keep people, you know, on track as to who's in what lane. And so, um, you know, and then we're just constantly, you know, weaving in, you know, all these stories that we talked about earlier, that if you can weave in a personal story sometimes in a longer race, um, that enhances it as well. But um, it, it, it it's kind of become pretty easy for me up on my perch. We've got a great position where, up, you know, toward the finish line, just in front of the finish line, looking down at it. So I used to look at the monitor more, and I still double, triple check that time that comes up that everybody watching home sees. Uh, but I know when I'm looking at the pool that I have got this wide view of, of the action. And I've, I've, through the years of doing so many swimming races, it, it's become uh, easier for me to identify who's surging, who's coming to the wall, who might be. Um, you know, coming from behind that uh, maybe the television cameras don't pick up right away. Um, for instance, the Jason Lezak race from China with Phelps won his eight gold medals. I mean, I just kind of sensed this uh, Lezak coming up on on uh, Alain Bernard, who was swimming anchor for France and ended up being one of the, the most incredible Olympic races of all time. Um, so, yeah, it, it, you kind of gain a knack for, for the pool and looking at the lanes. I'm certainly a lot better at it than I was in 96, I'll say that. So, uh, but again, you, you, you still got to be incredibly careful that if you don't know through the naked eye who won the race, you got to look at the you got to look at the graphics on the screen because that ultimately is a race that could be decided by one one hundredth of a second. So uh, it's all exciting, it's all happening in a hurry, and it's uh, it's a lot of fun to do a swimming race in the Olympics, no doubt. That Jason Lezak race is that your favorite? Because I think that's probably the most memorable, and it's funny that of all. Phelps' gold medals, the, the, the most famous, might be the one where it was somebody else uh, finishing off the race in a relay. But uh, is, is that, do you think that's the best race you've done? And how happy are you with your call at the end of that one, or maybe compared to some others that you've done? Yeah, I would say two stand out, and they were both in that Olympics. But I, w- I would have to go with a relay. The other race that Phelps needed that was going to be dicey going in was the 100 fly. That ended up ended up touching uh, Mutarad Cabbage by one one hundredth of a second to win that race. That was after the uh, four hundred free relay race, which was Jason Lezak comeback. I mean, you know, it's funny. You know, you it was live. You know, we were live in China in the morning in China, but prime time on the East Coast in, in the United States. So we knew we had a big audience. It was it was Michael Phelps trying to get the second goal and keep this whole thing alive, and. We had, we had, we had, uh, Rowdy had mostly, you know, broken down the race to where, you know, the United States, and in this case, Jason Lezak, needed to have a lead to have any kind of shot to, to win gold. So when he got into the pool and he was a body length, and at one point in the race, at least maybe a body and a half length behind the Land Bernard of France, we pretty much rode him off. And anybody in the right mind would have done the same thing based on all the numbers, all the history of races that Bernard had swam, and really the unclutch-like performances that Jason Lezak to that point had delivered in his Olympic career. 
um, it was really not going to happen. I mean, that, so when he turned for home and he started pinching up on Bernard, we had already basically said it was a race for silver. I had said it. I'll never forget what I said. I go, this is basically a race. The United States is trying to hang on to the silver medal. It was that kind of conclusive of a look and a feel. And then when Lezak started coming up on Bernard, it was like a, some sort of crazy switch came on. And I'm like, wow, are we really seeing what is happening? Is this really for real? Because it was like impossible, literally, with the results, like I said, I talked about in the history of those two guys. So when he ended up coming to the line or to the wall, and it was too close to call. This, this is an example of a race that's too close to call through the naked eye because he just got in there and sweeped ahead of Bernard. I had to look at the screen to get the official result that he had just out-touched him. Uh, it, was, it was absolutely insanity. I reached a level of my voice that I actually thought that I had ruptured some sort of vocal cord because I, I went to a level of, of, uh, of, uh, of decibels, I guess you could say, of announcing that I'd never reached before and and he got to the wall. It was, just, it was a crazy, crazy moment. So that race, um, it does stand out because it was a team thing, and it was one of those deals where a guy, um, in this case Jason Lezak, had to have the race of his life in order for Michael Phelps to eventually win eight gold medals, which I believe will never be surpassed um, in a single Olympic. So all of that, all of that, uh, you know, into the equation, uh, it, it, it's, it's it's the it's the most exciting and best race I've had the privilege to call the Olympics. No doubt. Mm-hmm. So, and we've talked mostly about swimming, but you've uh, had some other great moments at Tiger's famous U.S. Open in uh, 2008, and you're the guy, uh, expect anything different is the call that I'm sure a lot of people have heard, and uh, and that's you. How does, so how does uh, how do those two compare? Are there any other, like, career highlights or uh, best either meaningful to you or just best because of the ending and the call, but anything else that stands out from your career uh, in any other sport? Yeah, I would say, and it's funny how the Tiger U.S. Open victory, Tory Pines was the same summer, within just a couple of months of each other, of, uh, of Phelps doing his eight gold medals in China. Uh, you know, it was uh, preceded by Tiger doing what he did at Tory Pines. And, uh, yeah, that, 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 people probably, probably know, know me best or, or, or know my, my call from that as, as well as, 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 as best as any call I've ever had in golf, that's for sure. Uh, on that 72nd hole, just because of what was at stake and what Tiger was going through with it, with the knee and the injury and the leg and the whole thing limping his way around. It was like a, another surreal kind of atmosphere uh, at Torrey Pines. And so when he was over that putt on the 72nd hole and Rocco Medier was watching from a monitor near the scoring tent, um, it's funny, I, I, was, I was looking out over the crowd and I was just kind of getting a sense of the moment. And it wasn't like I had orchestrated what I was going to say beforehand because I think you really got to let these calls come from your natural gut. And um, as I was looking out over the audience, I kept thinking to myself, I think everybody expects him to make this because that's kind of the feeling that I had. So as we're melting this moment and laying out, Tiger's going around it and he, and he puts it and it's bouncing around on that poana, that unsure green surface uh, at Torrey Pines, and it goes in. It just kind of just came, you know, roaring out of me. Expect anything different because that's that's what I thought I was feeling, and that's what I thought everybody else was feeling. So um, it was just a great moment, and the reaction that Tiger had was priceless. And anytime you have a, a call like that, 
obviously it's the action which drives it. It's Tiger's emotional reaction to it. And if you can just kind of put a little bit of a wrap on it, and in this case, expect anything different, and just lay out and let the rest of it kind of do its thing, uh, it can become pretty poetic. And, and that's, as, as you as you get into this business, that's that's as good as it could be scripted, um, even though we are announcing unscripted events. But that's as good as it, it comes together with our whole team and the way we set up that, uh, that plot in that moment. So golf-wise, that's probably what I'm most proud of is that moment because every time, and, it, and there's just so few of these moments in a, an entire career, but any time they do come around, you never know when they're going to come around, but any time they do, and they kind of, you know, be happy with the call you had and have it maybe make the event even a little bit more memorable but because of it is uh, one of the greatest satisfactions you can have in this business. Yeah, and it's pretty cool. Not just great moments, but these are two, I mean, iconic athletes and some of the most uh, memorable from their era that will be talked about forever. So it's pretty cool that you get to be like the soundtrack of, of Phelps's Olympic career. Um, yeah, and, and you know, it's funny. Man, it's like, yeah, it's funny. I was just going to say, it, you know, the timing that I've had has been so lucky. I've been so lucky to have to basically follow two of the most iconic athletes, probably the most two of the most exciting athletes in the history of sports. Um, kind of take them up through right when they started as teenagers. Phelps, in his case, at the 2000 Olympics when he didn't win a medal, but he finished fourth in the in the in the 200 fly as a 15 year old, and then Tiger, who we started doing his U.S. Amateur Championships when he was 18, 19 years old. So to follow them all the way through their careers and see what they did, uh, yeah, I mean that's 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 pretty lucky and pretty fortunate stuff. Yeah, how many U.S. Opens did you call? We did an even twenty. Okay, and then stopped because uh, obviously now they're on Fox instead of NBC. Um, yeah. But I I did see you tweeted a picture that I I figured you'd be watching, so you were watching the U.S. Open, and it was oh, pretty, yeah. pretty crazy with. Uh, Dustin Johnson and the controversy over whether or not he was going to get a penalty stroke. Have you ever seen anything like that? No, I haven't, but it's, 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 it's happened, but it hasn't happened at the microscope of the U.S. Open, um, you know, on, on national television like that on a network. So, um, but, but, but golf, you know, I think golf learned a lesson here. And, you know, cause I think that you cannot have that kind of ambiguity, um, hanging over an event, any kind, much less the U.S. Open. And I think that uh, golf has to take a very, very careful, strong look at how they operate. And I think that they have to be more definitive. Now, use of video is good. And any time you can use video in any sport um, to make the right call, I'm a big believer in that. But in this case, to tell Dustin Johnson that, well, we, you might have incurred a one-shot penalty and we'll let you know. We want you to take a look at the video afterwards. That was the whole problem with it. They have to decide. They have to be the judge on this. And they've got to, they've got to, you know, they've got to be big enough to say, you know, you either got the one-shot penalty or you don't. They can't let it hang in the balance like you did. That, that was the biggest problem with it. And you can talk a lot about the rule itself, but I think that is, that is the biggest lesson learned here is that golf, Golf needs to wake up and get out of that environment where it's great. It's, it's, it's the game of honor. Golfers call penalties on themselves, and I'm not talking necessarily about that. But in this case, if if, if the USGA in this case feels like that Dustin broke the rules, then call him on it, give him the one-shot penalty, and let's move on. You know what I mean? 
Yeah, I mean that's what I thought, and that's and it was amazing to see all the some of the top players in the world saying the same thing on Twitter um, yep. in live time. So when when you're watching any tournament, but especially something like that, and I'm not going to ask you to like critique Joe Buck and those guys and how they did, but are you watching like with that broadcaster perspective, like paying attention to what they say and thinking like, oh, I would have said this or I'd be talking about that. I'm curious if that's kind of your mindset when you watch. And also, I'm just wondering how you might have handled it if you were the guy on the call during that uh, during that controversy. How would you have talked about that? Yeah, I think all of us. Um, you know, I certainly admire what Joe Buck's done in his career. And so I'm absolutely listening to how he handled the golf. And again, he's pretty new at it. But he's a, he's a pro and uh, as good as anybody in the business today. So... I think the whole I think the whole Fox team improved significantly from last year. And again, it was tough. They just walked into a into basically a super, doing a Super Bowl first first time out of the gates when they when they did the U.S. Open at Chambers Bay last year. So not easy for them at all. But absolutely, I am I am watching, especially a championship like the U.S. Open that, that it really became a part of us and, for, and forever will be a part of us. If you do twenty of those championships. It, it does hold a special place in your heart. So I'm watching from that reason. And I'm also watching, I do the same thing when I watch the Masters, and I do the same thing when I watch any golf tournament. Um, but I really watch the majors because uh, I have great respect for uh, what Jim Nance does and, and what Joe Buck does and from what other crews do and how they handle it. So I'm definitely, uh, and you can learn from everybody. You know, you can you can learn by watching and observing and saying, okay, I don't think it should have been handled that way, or wow, they did a good job handling that. So you take little bits and pieces from from what you watch, and you do incorporate. Just like when I got, first got started in the, in the business of sports broadcasting, I listened to other sports broadcasters and and found little bits and pieces. Obviously, you are who you are, and you become your own style of a, of a broadcaster. But I think you learn from other people. So absolutely, when I was watching the U.S. Open, I. I'm, I'm watching and seeing how they handled it. Um, and, you know, as far as the rules, as the rules thing with Dustin Johnson went, I think Fox did, did, a, did a really nice job with that. I think they, uh, they were on the story. They, Joe kept reminding everybody, hey, we got, we got a score on the board, but that may not be the, the score at the end of the day. And uh, Brad Faxon and Paul A. Zinger and, and a couple of the other guys were very critical of uh, what the USGA GA did. So I, I thought, and then the aspect of the rule, they really, they really nailed it. So uh, I thought they did a fine job in that regard. And now this summer, two of your worlds are colliding because golf's new in the Olympics. Are you excited about that or to see golf there? I'm assuming that there was, there was no thought to having you taking you off swimming or making, helping you be able to do both. There was never any thought to having you call the Olympic golf, right? No, there wasn't. It, yeah, it, there wasn't any uh, thought to it. Uh, because swimming obviously is a showcase event, long time in the Olympics and golf is coming back for the first time in more than 100 years. Um, not not to say for 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 an instant that golf won't be exciting, uh, but it was just impossible for me to do both. It had to be one or the other, and uh, I'm really happy I'm doing swimming. Uh, golf Channel and the rest of the guys on NBC, we've got a deep deep bench, so there'll be guys. Uh, you know, Johnny Miller's going to be doing it with Terry Gannon. And so they're going to be fine um, over there with that sport. Um, so yeah, there's just uh, there's no way I could have done both, and I'm I'm, I'm really happy I'm doing swimming, and I'm, I'm interested to see how the golf is going to uh, um, be received. It's uh, it'll be interesting uh, because the same thing happened in tennis a while back when tennis was back in the Olympics. 
you know, these, these professionals who play the game at the highest level in the world are involved in it. And, um, you know, we've had some, some of the top players in the world uh, withdraw from the Olympics because of the Zika virus, which is unfortunate. But, you know, I say to people who tell me, oh, geez, all these guys are pulling out, I still say, you know what? Hang in there because somebody's going to win an Olympic gold medal and it's going to be pretty special, um, whoever wins it. And uh, I think uh, I'm looking forward to to hearing and seeing the golf uh, for the first time back in there in a long time. Yeah, how tough is it for you to follow? I mean, and you just got done saying how busy you are uh, prepping and getting ready and, and the grind for all the swimming. How tough is it to even follow the other sports that are going on during the Olympics while you're kind of in a swimming bubble there? Yeah, interesting question. It's not easy. Uh, but what we one of the one of the great things that uh, NBC started doing years ago when I first started actually covering the Olympics is every morning when you get up, there is a uh, I think it's called the torch. I think that's the name of it. But what it is is a brief rundown on what happened in the previous uh, day's competition throughout all the sports. It gives you kind of a headline version of what happened in track and field, what happened in gymnastics, what happened in fencing. It gives you the most important stories and kind of a brief overview. And I make a point of, of reading that because inevitably the whole Olympic broadcast teams, you know, from sport to sport are kind of connected with each other. You know, we'll go back to Bob Costas and the IBC. He'll throw it back out to beach volleyball and he'll, they'll throw it back out to us in swimming. So we have to know what's happening in the other venues. Because if there's a big story happening and maybe they allude to it and we don't fully really kind of know what it's all about, you can, you know, kind of look foolish and disconnected. So it is hard, but that, that little, that little, uh, you know, piece of, uh, you know, three, four pages stapled together that comes underneath my door every morning, I make it uh, a point of reading it and keeping up to date on it because it's real important to, to know what else is going on and you have no idea. I don't, at least, because we can't watch any of the other sports. You're so immersed in what you're doing in your own venue that uh, there's no way you can keep up, up, keep up with it by watching it. So this little thing that comes underneath our door every morning is key. So, yeah, I, I, I definitely read that every day. Yeah. Um, and that's, so and I'm guessing in years past, uh, have you had time to stay? Because swimming is, like, done halfway through, and then I know this year you're going home, but have you had other Olympics where you do – sort of get a few days at the end to go check out other events and, and see some other sports in person, or is that not a thing you usually get to do? Yeah, in past Olympics, I've, I've had the opportunity to, to host closing ceremonies, and uh, so therefore I've had a little bit of time after swimming's done and prepping, and before the, the closing ceremony happens, I've had some time to go out to some other venues. So absolutely, um, I, will, I will go out and, and watch what I can. Uh, a few years back, I watched the beach volleyball. Um, at the Olympics, uh, I don't know if that was Greece or wherever it was, but, you know, definitely, because it's, it's really cool to go out to the other venues in person and kind of see where, you know, see why everybody's so excited about this player or that competition or that venue. And television's great, and, uh, and it's, there's no better seat in the house to get the full overview of how the Olympic Games um, is transpiring, but to have also the opportunity to go fuel the electricity and, be at the Olympic Stadium when the finals of events 100 meters is happening. That feeling doesn't quite come through the TV set as it does uh, when you're witnessing it. So, yeah, I, I definitely take advantage of a few opportunities. I haven't seen a ton of events outside of what I've done, but uh, those 
those times where I have, it's, uh, it's been uh, pretty unforgettable. Okay, well, just a couple more, and, uh, and I know you got to get out of here uh, at some point, but I, I did want to ask, and you brought it up, actually, with some of the other, uh, some of the top players who are pulling out because of the Zika virus and other reasons. Is that something for you as a broadcaster? Did you have any concerns, or do you have any, about the Zika virus in particular or any other? I mean, I even I remember watching, like, the photos were, like, comical coming out of Sochi with how uh, how bad the media hotel was and, and the town just looked so, you know, weird and unbuilt uh, and things weren't done. You know, do you have any concerns about Brazil, either the, the Zika or anything else with just, like, the infrastructure and things being ready that uh, make you worried about going down there? You know, it's funny. Every Olympics, there's been some sort of issue. It's just like it, it goes without saying. There's going to be some controversy, some concern that is, in many cases, overhyped by the media. They've got to kind of, you know, cling to some something that might be an issue and might be some sort of embarrassment for the host city or this or that. Um, so through the years, that's been pretty much the blueprint of the Olympics. There's no doubt about that. And now they've got a very real health concern of the Zika virus. No doubt about it. It is an issue. Um, there have been some athletes, including several of the world's top top golfers, who are now uh, not going because of it. So that is very real. Um, personally, I'm not concerned about it. Um, you know, I, I, I have I have three beautiful girls. Uh, our family is done, <laughs> my wife and I, and so I don't have too many concerns about that person from a personal perspective. Also, because I will be inside uh, the Olympic uh, Aquatic Center, and I will be, you know, I won't be out there on the course, uh, you know, day in day out, you know, all day long. So um, I don't have personal concerns about it, but I certainly understand. Uh, the golfers' reasons, and I certainly understand anybody else's personal and private um, reasons for not doing it. Um, so that is a very real issue for Rio, along with the water. And I don't know, I'm not uh, expert enough to know uh, about what's happening with the open water and all that and exactly what precautions are being taken or where the venues have even moved to, for that matter, But uh, uh, because we're in a, a chlorinated pool inside and it's not an issue for me, but... Uh, definitely, uh, and Rio's got obviously some some economic uh, turmoil, big time right now. Uh, but it's amazing, Mitch, how how through every Olympics without fail, fail, um, each city has been able to overcome whatever's been thrown their way. And the competition is just so incredible that it really is what the Olympics are all about. They're able to the cities and the world and for all the political. Um, disarray that's been accompanied through so many Olympics, the competition usually wins out. And that is a great thing about the Olympics. And I really hope that that once again is the case for, uh, for Rio, because that's what it's all about. Forgetting about all these other issues that aren't easy to forget about, as I mentioned, are very real, but um, 17 days of competitions just has a way of overshadowing any of that stuff. And I hope that's the case again. Yeah, well, on that note, I'll give you one uh, quick one to, to finish off the last question here. Uh, people are excited. Michael Phelps probably his last one, and people know Missy Franklin. Is there uh, a race or maybe two races that you think are just the ones we should be excited about that'll uh, be down to the wire, the most exciting swimming races we see in Rio? Yeah, I do, and I, one of them involves Michael Phelps. Uh, I urge people, uh, whatever schedule they have, their viewing uh, schedule is for these Olympics, to make sure that they are in front of the television set 
when Michael Phelps uh, is in the finals of the 200 fly. If you remember from four years ago, there was a South African swimmer by the name of Chad Leclo who beat Phelps. And there's a lot more attached to this than just Phelps kidding back at this guy because this guy's dad is a pretty big celebrator in the uh, stands. And he will be animated. We will have a camera on him. This guy's done some talking. Michael Phelps uh, doesn't need much bulletin board material, but I think this guy's given it to him. And Phelps wants to reestablish himself uh, in a discipline, which really is the signature event of his career. So the 200 fly with Michael Phelps in the final uh, is going to be great. Um, another one that I think uh, people can look forward to is uh, any race that Katie Ledecky is swimming. Katie Ledecky probably doesn't uh, resonate right now as a name like Missy Franklin or a name like Ryan Lochte, but she has the potential of winning multiple gold medals, individual and in the relay. Uh, she will win the 800. I say this and I knock on wood, provided she stays healthy and everything is, uh, everything is in order. But the 803, the 403, she's going to absolutely blow away the field. And I think that's going to be exciting for people to watch. And then she's going to dip down to 200 free, where she has a very good chance of pedaling there, and maybe even the gold medal there. Um, so Katie Ledecky could put down, when it's all said and done, an historic Olympics for, uh, for a U.S. female Olympian and for a swimmer, uh, period. So uh, any race that Katie Ledecky is uh, racing in that 200 fly race specifically for uh, – greatest Olympian of all time. So. All right. Awesome. Well, thanks. I'm uh, I'm excited for the Olympics, and uh, I'm sure everyone else will. Now, thanks for letting us know which ones to tune in, although uh, I think I'll be watching every night. So. Uh, yeah, I would, I, would, I, would, I would probably tune in every night because the Olympics, that's the you safe never know way to do happen. it. Yeah. There all you right. Go. Great. Well, thanks again so much for your time, and those of you listening, you can follow Dan on Twitter at DanHicksNBC. Tune into the Olympics, see them all summer, and we didn't even talk about Notre Dame football. Uh, maybe I'll have to have you come back on in the fall, but uh, you can check him out there. And if you're listening and made it to the end, you can also follow me on Twitter. I'm at Mitch Goldich, M-I-T-C-H-G-O-L-D-I-C-H, and feel free to subscribe to the podcast in iTunes. I've had past guests like Jason Stark, Jeff Perlman, Shiel Kapadia. It's been a lot of fun, and I've enjoyed it, so hopefully you can go back, listen to a few. Feel free to give me a rating and a review. And also I have a Facebook page where I post all my stories I write and all episodes of the podcast. Go on Facebook and search Mitch Goldich Sports, or you can visit my website, MitchGoldich.com. So one last time, thanks to Dan Hicks. Thanks to everybody who listened, and talk to you later.